I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Sarah Rosenbaum, Professor of Health Law and Policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. We're discussing the safety net, Medicaid, and health care reform. Professor Rosenbaum, in a current Perspective article, Kellerman and colleagues discuss the ramifications for health care safety net of the Supreme Court's decision to make Medicaid expansion optional for the states. So what are the inherent risks to hospitals that have a disproportionate share of poor and uninsured patients? The authors of the article are very correct to flag this as a very serious policy issue. Of course, when the law was passed, the assumption was that all states would expand Medicaid. And Congress provided, therefore, that the special payments that go to hospitals under both Medicare and Medicaid for offsetting the costs of their disproportionate share of uh, treatment activities would drop. And that made some sense, although even at the time that the law was enacted, there was some skepticism about whether the reduction in payments was overly ambitious. The article points out in Massachusetts, which of course has served as a laboratory throughout this process, it was obvious that following an initial drop, the demands for uncompensated care have in fact gone back up some. So the number was an ambitious number to begin with, and of course, then the Supreme Court decided that it would be constitutional to extend Medicaid only if states were allowed to opt out. And since then, we've seen, as of today, 26 states opt out. The effects on hospitals that treat uninsured patients are enormous. Even in states that will expand their programs, the expansions will take a while to phase in, and the Medicaid expansion covers, of course, hospital care, and it covers it at almost no cost sharing, but there are many people who won't qualify for the expansion for a variety of reasons, including having too much income for Medicaid, and therefore ending up in the health insurance marketplaces where insurance coverage will carry a pretty significant deductible everybody expects. And then, of course, there are other people who will experience breaks in coverage or who will be uninsured because of their legal status, and these are the hospitals that see those patients. And so even in an expansion situation, one might expect a considerable amount of uncompensated care to remain for these kinds of hospitals in a state that doesn't expand and that continues, as several states do in the article, to not target the dish monies. The results are truly catastrophic for many of these facilities. They just they can't make it through with any loss of their dish funding, much less the kinds of losses that are contemplated in the coming years. So you mentioned targeting dish payments. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has published a proposed rule for allocating the reductions that are going to be made in disproportionate share hospital or dish funds. And that will make matters worse for safety net hospitals in states that don't target appropriately. So how are hospitals and states reacting to that proposed rule? Well, interestingly, the rule has become final. The rule became final a couple of weeks ago now. And the reaction on the part of the states is really too early to gauge. No systematic survey has been done yet to measure 
what the states intend to do, whether the states that aren't targeting their money are going to target their money and mitigate their losses, or whether states are going to remain in a relatively untargeted framework. So it will probably be a few more months before we know exactly how states will respond to the final rule. But, you know, even with targeting, the state can mitigate its losses, but these hospitals will experience a loss. And that's why, of course, the authors make the recommendations at the end that they do, I presume, which is to maybe rethink the policy from the get-go. And for your part, what else do you think needs to be done to guarantee that even uninsured patients have access to care? I think it's very hard, obviously, to structure anything akin to a guarantee. For example, Massachusetts is quite unique in its decision to accompany reform with a health safety net fund, which provides a financing mechanism for people who don't otherwise qualify for insurance. And that has been, I am sure, a lifesaver, not only for health centers and clinics serving the poor and public hospitals, but for patients as well. That kind of forward-thinking policy is probably not something that we're going to see in a lot of states. And so even in an optimal implementation of health reform, the number of uninsured is expected to fall by about 25 million now in the coming years. But that number falls well short of the remaining uninsured. And without a strong disproportionate share payment program, and continuing investments of the kind that Congress made in the health centers program as part of health reform, it will be very difficult to maintain even a basic adequate access to care. Now, you said earlier that 26 states have opted out of Medicaid expansion. Do you think that number is firm, or, or will there be changes in who implements and who does not? Well, just before we got started on this interview today, a news flash came in that it appears that Governor Kasich of Ohio is going to go ahead and use his own executive authority to expand Medicaid, which would be a wonderful development because, of course, Ohio is a very big state. Pennsylvania is still sort of teetering on the verge of maybe expanding. So very slowly, some of the states that have been colored in red, meaning sort of the no color, may be coming around. But there is no question that when January comes around, at least probably 23, 24 states are going to not have the expansion. And I believe that the real story is much less things like a malfunctioning website, uh, which we've all, I'm sure, experienced a little bit of over the past couple of weeks as we've seen the website go through its shaky startup period, the real story is going to be millions of people who are turned away because they are too poor. The states that are the most affected by this are the states that by any measure carry the most serious burden of illness. It is, of course, racial and ethnic minority groups that are disproportionately affected in these states on almost any measure of health beginning early in life and going through to the end of life. These are the states that show the worst outcomes. They have the worst problems in terms of trying to improve the quality of their care on a population-wide basis. And these are the states that have said no to the expansion, which leaves these states, I think, poised to fall 
further and further behind as the years proceed. One hopes that after um, you know a few months of standing by and watching their poorest residents go without coverage, the states will come around. In another perspective article, Ayanian describes the approach that's being taken to expand Medicaid in Michigan, which is Republican-controlled. And that approach includes provisions to limit the cost to the state, to increase cost sharing for enrollees, and to rely on private managed care plans and health savings accounts. What do you see as the risks and benefits of that sort of approach? Uh, Let's start with the benefits. I think the benefits are pretty obvious. This is a strategy that actually Governor Beebe of Arkansas first pursued and was able to move an expansion through his very conservative legislature. It's a strategy now that we've seen in Iowa. It is a strategy that may emerge in Pennsylvania and probably may emerge in New Hampshire. And so the Michigan strategy is definitely in keeping with this trend. Governor Snyder was an early proponent of it. So the biggest benefit of the strategy is that it appears to be working. That is that if states are allowed to bring very traditional Medicaid principles somewhat more into line with more modern sensibilities about insurance coverage and the relationship between coverage and behavior, this seems to give lawmakers some comfort about what's a tolerable Medicaid policy. The cost-sharing rules are probably the most troubling. The Michigan model proposes to phase in cost-sharing, but in the end, the cost-sharing is rather draconian, and that's true in some of these other proposals, state proposals as well. And of course, there's some overlap here between this article and our previous discussion, because to the extent that people who can't afford to pay cost-sharing end up in hospital emergency departments or at clinics that care for the poor, uh, they will receive the care and it will just be more uncompensated care. But the notion of using private managed care arrangements is really not such a new one. This is something that Medicaid has experimented with, really it's no longer an experiment. Managed care is the style of coverage for upwards of 70% of all Medicaid beneficiaries. So the notion that you would enroll somebody in a plan sold in the marketplace as opposed to to the Medicaid program directly is not so startling, and it has the benefit also of perhaps enabling individuals to stay with their plans even if their incomes fluctuate a little bit and they earn some more money and become marketplace eligible. So it has the pronounced benefit of getting people over a political and philosophical hurdle, I think, And it has some very significant structural downsides that are going to have to be carefully watched. So given all of that, do you think that Michigan has provided a template that other Republican-controlled states are going to follow? Yes. Michigan's approach, as I noted, is the approach that we're seeing in other states that have quite conservative outlooks about the Medicaid program. And I expect when all is said and done, we may find that upwards of a dozen states follow this template. I think it's the template, quite frankly, that Governor Scott of Florida was attempting, but simply could not convince his legislature to follow. And a question on the level of individual patient and physician. In a third perspective article, Casalino proposes that all U.S. physicians make a commitment to serve enough Medicaid patients to account for 5% of their practice. How difficult is it currently to find a physician who's taking new Medicaid patients and Is it getting more difficult than it is for, say, Medicare patients? Well, of course, physician participation in Medicaid has always been 
problematic. I was reminded of this not long ago. I was rereading portions of one of the great histories of the Medicaid program, Welfare Medicine by Robert and Rosemary Stevens, which was written and published in 1974. And if you take a look at the early chapters, there's the deal with the initial phases of Medicaid. It was obvious right from the beginning of the program that participation by office-based physicians was going to be very low relative to other forms of insurance, and that has remained a feature of the program for 50 years now. So even though Medicaid is, of course, the journal's own tremendous published studies on the program have shown, Medicaid makes a huge difference in access to care, both primary care and advanced care, and yet what is also true about Medicaid is that people are more likely to receive their care in clinical settings, in community-based clinical settings, so community health centers or hospital clinics, not emergency departments, but hospital-based clinics, women's health clinics, other kinds of publicly financed clinics that offer comprehensive care are more likely to be a major source of care for Medicaid beneficiaries, which is fine, but as uh, Larry Casolino points out, there are real problems when physicians have such a limited relationship to the program. And in some states, of course, the numbers are very low. A recent article published in Health Affairs, I think, reported that in New Jersey, the proportion of physicians willing to see new Medicaid patients was below 40%. So this is a chronic problem with the Medicaid program. I think many studies suggest that it's not just a fees issue, that as the Casalino study points out, there's a lot going on here besides fees. And so overcoming limited participation has always been a real challenge. And yes, it's certainly a more limited participation than one sees in Medicare. If we could get past those obstacles, would a 5% per physician commitment be appropriate and adequate? Well, I think his idea is, of course, a, a very good one. Physicians should, in my view, set aside time and resources for Medicaid participation, and their participation is really quite essential, and particularly in the specialty areas. I should note that pediatricians look very different from the norm. They participate in Medicaid at high rates, but other primary care specialties, not so much, and the subspecialties, the participation rates are, are of course, can be very difficult. It can be very difficult to find specialists. But I think there are sort of some limits to what he proposes. The first one is the limit of geography. That is to say that if every physician in the West End of Washington participated to some degree in Medicaid, and many do, but the West End of Washington is our most affluent area and there are many physicians who don't. If they all were to participate, it would have relatively limited meaning, at least for the primary care specialties, for poor Washington residents, because poor Washington residents live a long distance away in terms of travel time. The same is true here. I live in Northern Virginia. If all the physicians in the wealthy areas of Northern Virginia participated, it would make very little difference to our poor communities in Orlandria and in Fairfax and places like that. And for that reason, for example, Our community health center in Arlandria, which straddles Arlington and Alexandria, just got a tremendous amount of funding to start a new health center in the middle of Fairfax, which is very affluent, the most affluent 
county in the country because health care is just inaccessible, and some of it is certainly unwillingness to participate, and some is just geography where people live. The other problem, I think, is that health care is now organized in a very different way for Medicaid beneficiaries. It's like the rest of us. We're all in networked health plans. So you can't just decide you're going to see a few Medicaid beneficiaries. If you're going to be a cardiologist who participates in Medicaid, you're going to have to make your services available through a physician network that serves the Medicaid population via a Medicaid participating plan. And it may be possible to put some limits on the referrals you'll accept, but Medicaid agencies have a terrible time dealing with limited access networks. And plan issuers probably don't want to deal with limited access networks. So operationalizing this kind of voluntary, a tithing almost, is very different in today's world from what it might have been, and yet there really is no other answer, particularly on the specialist care. Thank you, Professor Rosenbaum.